Some of you probably recognize uh, <clears throat> the words from that song, that they come from Scripture, and they actually come from Job chapter 38 through 42, and it's the portion in the book of Job, and we were in the book of Job last week, where after Job has requested from God a meeting, a, a place where they could talk and you know try to figure out what's going on, that... Uh, God finally answers Job, but he answers him by asking him 77 questions. You can read it and count it on your own if you like <laughs> in chapter 38 through 42. But the questions were some of the words to, to that song. So God never really answers Job's question. He just kind of says, Job, since I've created everything there is to create, can't you just trust me sometimes when you don't really know why? And that brings us to today's message. We're in a series called Life in a Word. And the truth is, no matter how complex you and I are as human beings, and no matter how complex our life is, sometimes our whole character, our whole life can be summarized at times in one word. Uh, last week, we looked at the word had. Sometimes our whole character and our life becomes characterized by some catastrophic loss or series of losses that we've experienced. Today we come to the word, why? And it's a word that's often on the lips of uh, ourselves as human beings. And, of course, anybody that's raised kids knows that you hear it constantly, why, why, why? And then as teenagers, the whys get more demanding. But uh, to get us started, here's a little excerpt from uh, the life of a TV guy that we're most familiar with, uh, actor Tim Allen. And... Uh, his father died when he was 11 years old in a car accident. Let me give you the background. His dad was driving home from a college football game, and a drunk driver hit his dad, killed him. And Alan's response to this, he said, Part of me still doesn't trust that everything will work out all right. I knew my father was dead, but I was never satisfied with, and what's the word? Why? And this is what gets us. Why? Why? Why him? Why then? Why the drunk driver? Why? Just seconds would have changed everything. I was never satisfied with the why he was dead. I wanted answers that minute from God. Do you think this is funny? Do you think this is necessary? And I've had a tumultuous relationship with my creator ever since. Why, God? You could have done something. You could have changed this. And I know that most of us in here, if not all of us in here, have encountered people that have those kinds of stories in their life, you know, where they say, you know, this happened to my aunt, and she was the most wonderful person in the world, and I don't get it. Why? Why would God let that happen? Why didn't he intervene? He could have, if he's supposed to have all power, and he's supposed to be all good, why didn't he do something? Why isn't he doing something? Why? Why? And it's a word that can really torment us because here's the truth about us as humans. We humans want life to make sense. We want it to be completely understandable. We want it to be orderly. We want it to be predictable. We want it to be just. By that, I mean fair. And we want it to be understandable. Every day, every situation, whatever we encounter, we want it to fit into this box. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's because we're made in the image of God and we are logical, rational beings. We should be driven by that to a degree, but the truth is we don't always get the answer to our whys in this life. Let me go on. 
We long for life to have meaning and purpose. We, we want it all to make sense. We want it to have meaning, purpose. Let me go further. We seem to believe that if we can understand what's going on, if we can get an answer to the why, if I know what's going on, if I understand why it's going on, we will somehow be able to stand what's going on. If I can understand what's going on, I'll be able to stand what's going on. And we know this is true to some measure. Um, most of the ladies in here, I would wager to guess, uh, have had children. I don't want to ask you to raise your hands, but you, you go through this thing. You, you get exponentially big for nine months, and you know it's going to happen in advance. You know it, and yet you do it. And then, <laughs> and then it's going to end with excruciating pain that brings you to the threshold of death. And yet you do it because you understand you're bringing forth a new life. And, and, and not only do you do it once, you usually do it more than once. You go right back and do it again. Now let me tell you a secret, ladies. Listen carefully. Something you'll learn about men. Men, let's be honest. If we knew getting pregnant, and we had to be the pregnant ones, we were going to get exponentially big for nine months, and then we were going to go through excruciating pain almost to the threshold of death. How many men would acknowledge there wouldn't be as many people in the world? Can I just see your hands? Yeah. yeah. There may be 10. Maybe 10 people. And that would be by accident somehow. But if we understand uh, a situation, even a painful one, we feel like we can stand it. And there is a measure of truth to that. Okay, so I don't want to, I don't want to diminish this. Let me go to the next. So, we forever want to know why. It is the human condition. We want to know why. Tell me why, and then I think I can endure or behave in a, an appropriate intellectual way if you just give me the why. Now, the truth is, as I said it earlier in the message, we don't always get the why. I want to take you one more time. And I promise you, this is not going to be a series that's going to stay in the book of Job. I promise you that. But we were in Job last week. I want to go one more time to the book of Job. So if you don't mind, grab those Bibles that are near you on the chair, because we'll go through quite a few scriptures. And it will be page 552. And for you that brought your own Bible with you, you came packing, uh, you, you go to Job chapter 2. <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of people packing Bibles in here. I, w I wish they would. It's a good thing to do. It's a good... What's that? There's an app. There's an app. I, I hate you app people. <laughs> Let me tell you something, man. Books. Books is, is where it's at. <laughs> Spoken like an old goat. <laughs> so Job chapter 2, and we'll start it right in verse 1. And, and, you know, I did this last week. I should do it again. Let me give you a little background of Job because it will make... Job come alive to you in a slightly different way. The Bible is not written in chronological order, which is one of the reasons why we need help and study helps and teachers to first learn the Bible. So when you come to the book of Job, it's kind of like in the middle of your Old Testament, but in reality, it takes place right around Abraham's time, which is like Genesis chapter 12. So the reason that's important when you read the book of Job is this. Job, unlike you and I, didn't know anything anything whatsoever about the nature of God as it was revealed through Christ. 
particularly the sacrificial love of God revealed through Christ when he was on the cross. Job didn't know anything about that. He didn't know about Christ. He didn't know about God's sacrificial love. Let me go further. Job didn't know anything about Moses and the nation of Israel because they hadn't existed yet. Job didn't have a Bible period. Zero. Job would have known about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because he wasn't that far from the incident. He would have known about Noah's flood because he was even very close to that incident. He would have known about a very recent incident in his life in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. I won't fill in what that is. You can check it on your own sometime. But that's about it. That's all he knew. But what Job did have, going back to my series of messages before this one, by using his powers of observation and reasoning, Job knew that he could observe the best human being on the planet and God was a little bit better or a lot bit better than that. So he knew that if, if human beings had the capacity to be kind and forgiving and, and helpful, that God was that much more. So even though he didn't have a Bible, even though he didn't have Christ, even though he didn't have the, the nation of Israel or the law of God or any of those things, he had a pretty strong image of God and so can anyone that's willing to use these these brains that God's given us. So anyhow, he was handicapped in the sense that you and I possess right here um, the full revelation of God that we need to take us through whatever life dishes out. Job didn't have any of that. So keep that in mind as we now dig into Job itself. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in the day came when the sons of God, let me say what I said last week, sons of God in the Old Testament is only used of angels. It is never used of human beings. In the New Testament, it is used of human beings that trust in Christ. But in the Old Testament, it is exclusively talking about angels. And the day came when the sons of God, or angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And who came with them? Satan, who is an angel, also arrived among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roving back on the earth and from walking back and forth across it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a pure and an upright man, one who fears God. That fears means has reverence for, supreme devotion to. It doesn't mean that he's scared of God. Who fears God and turns away from evil and he still holds firmly to his integrity so that you stirred me up to destroy him without reason. Remember what happened last week. Satan confronts God in the same way. God starts bragging about Job. He loves Job. He, Job is like the apple of God's eye. And he says, hey, 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 have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, in essence, says, you, you think he likes you for yourself, God? You think he loves your righteousness? Give me a break. He said, you're buying the man. You're bribing him. Because Job was very wealthy, it says. Chapter 1, it says he was the wealthiest man of his time. He had, you know, lots of... Ha cattle and herds and all these kinds of things and he had 10 kids and satan in essence says to him he says you know take his stuff away and he'll curse you to your face and god says okay go ahead but you can't hurt him and if you remember from last week he destroys job's entire business his entire economic base he kills 10 of his children all of his children and job never wavers at all he stays faithful to god though he does not understand it. Now it's another time Satan comes back. So let's go back once again. 
Look at Satan's answer. So God's bragging. He says, he holds, still holds firmly to his integrity so that you stirred me up to destroy him without reason. Satan's answer, verse 4. Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. Indeed, a man will give up all he has to save his life. But extend your hand and strike his bone and his flesh, and he will no doubt curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, all right, he's in your power. Only preserve his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with malignant ulcers from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Job took a shard of broken pottery to scrape himself with while he was sitting among the ashes. Then he said, excuse me, then his wife said to him, Are you still holding firmly to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he replied, You're talking like one of the godless women would do. Should we receive what is good from God and not also receive what is evil? In all this, Job did not sin by what he had said. She was a sweet, dear lady, wasn't she? Uh, (laughs) Verse 11. When God's three friends and another friend comes later, so there ends up being four friends. When, God, when Job's three friends, excuse me, when Job's three friends heard about the, all this calamity that had happened to him, each of them came from his own country, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. Ooh, it's hard to say, Naamathite. They met together to come show sympathy for him and to console him. But when they gazed intently from a distance but did not recognize him, they began to weep loudly. Each of them tore his robes and they threw dust in the air over their heads. This was symbolic of mourning and grief. Then they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, yet no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And we'll stop right there. Now, these friends... At this point, just do the right thing. If you want a model of what to do with somebody that's going through catastrophic loss and pain, personal pain, just sitting there quietly with the person, weeping with those that weep, it says in Scripture, mourn with those that mourn, and saying nothing. Our, our temptation is we feel like we have to say something Christian. Like, oh, you know, trust in the Lord and you shall be okay, you know, or all things work together for good. I want to tell you, when when a person's in pain, when a person's in catastrophe, when a person is in chaos mentally, psychologically, that's like poison. That's like salt in the wounds. So we Christians need to learn that sometimes the best gift we can give somebody is to just shut up and just mourn with them. Just be there. Be all there. Be present. And if a word is useful, give a word, but nothing more. So his friends did really good up to this point. But that's not where the story ends. Now, there's a few things that I think we, we want to you know, say before we get on to the friends a little bit. Satan's argument against Job. The first argument was, God, the only reason he's following you is because you're buying him. The second argument, the one we have here, he says, essentially, Job is selfish, The only reason he's still loyal to you is because nothing hurt him personally. But if you hurt him personally, if you hurt his physicality, he didn't even care. Satan was insinuating. He didn't even care about the death of his kids. If if you don't kill him, he's not going to care. Hurt him personally, God, and and watch what happens. Let Let me work him over physically. Let me cover his body with agonizing ulcerous sores, 
And he'll curse you to your face because he's just a selfish man. He's all about himself. Satan always projects his own character onto others. He slanders God to us. He started it in the Garden of Eden saying that God is a power monger, just wants to control us, that he's holding back from us. He slanders God to us, and then he slanders us to God. Revelation 12, 10, you can read it on your own sometime. It says he is standing in the presence of God today And he is still accusing the followers of Jesus just like he accused Job back then. You can only hope that you aren't too good because if you're too good, your number may come up. And you get a day of testing. I'm I'm being facetious about that, but that's the truth. It's because Job was such a wonderful man that Satan went after him with such heat. So you've got to factor that part in. But then there's Job's friends. So he gets no comfort from his wife. She, she urges him to curse God and die. Uh, his first level of support is gone, but, but at least there's his friends. And they start out doing very well. But I want to tell you, the whole rest of the book of Job, some of you that have read it, you know this. These guys just beat him to death psychologically. They just sit there and accuse him relentlessly of having done something horrific, some secret evil that he thinks he's going to get away with, but obviously God's calling him out on it because they were defending God. They said, God doesn't do these kinds of things. He doesn't allow these kinds of things to happen to his true servants, to his people that are really being faithful. You, Job, you, Job, you're, you're a phony, you're a fake, you've got evil going on in the background, and that's why God's burying you in agony. That's why he killed your family. That's why he destroyed your business. That's why he's now covering you with these ulcers. So, so do yourself a favor, Job, old buddy. And just come clean with God. Just confess. Because if you confess, God's merciful. He'll forgive you. He'll restore you. You'll, you'll get healthy again. But just come clean, man. I mean, we, we know. We know God doesn't do these kind of things without provocation. So they take the position, and you can read it on your own sometime, of, of defending God and accusing relentlessly Job of evil doing. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever personally experienced someone accusing you of something and you know you are absolutely entirely innocent of it, but they relentlessly confuse you or or, or accuse you, they won't give an inch, they just continue to accuse you and you know you're innocent. And you try to defend yourself, but but after a while you start feeling like you're just crazy defending yourself because it doesn't matter what you say, they're not going to listen. How many have ever been through a cycle like that? Can I honestly see your hands? It is psychological torment on a level that's hard to, even, hard to even describe. And when you defend yourself, you sort of feel guilty for defending yourself. It puts you into this weird trick bag. That's what was happening with Job. And this goes on and on. We don't know how long it went on, but if you read it, it's rather painful to read. In the midst of this, you have a second bit of information going on or a second dialogue and that's Job. Job keeps answering his accusers but at the same time he keeps crying out to God God why don't you just come down and meet with me just sit down. Well, I, I want to just look you eye to eye just tell me what is going on. If I've done something wrong tell me God the best that I can tell I haven't done a thing. I don't deserve this as far as I can tell. I'm going to be faithful to you but you, you just talk to me. Just, just tell me why. Why? That's Job's you know, continuous refrain as you read this story. Now, we're going to eventually look at the 42nd chapter, which is the end of the book of Job, but I don't want to take you there now because we're going to learn a lot of things when we come to that 42nd chapter. But now you know what what happens. 
in the book of Job. The man, first of all, how many of you have ever experienced chronic pain? I mean, the kind of pain that will not stop. It's 24 hours, maybe two days straight, three days straight, four days straight. You, you can take anything you want to take, but nothing stops the pain. If you've ever experienced this once in your life, you'll know what I'm talking about. How many have ever experienced that kind of chronic pain? Let me see your hands. Okay, a lot of you. You know then, it brings you to the very threshold of sanity. I mean, you, you really start getting to the place where you're almost panicked. I don't know what I'm going to do. That was Job. That was Job. He not only lost his economic base, he not only lost all of his children, he now had lost his health and was in agony. There was no medicine there. He couldn't go to the store and get some, you know, Tylenol or something like that. And he's psychologically and physically worn to a thread. And this thing is going on. Now, it's important, like I said last week, for you and I to recognize something, that there's, there's an entity behind the scenes. In fact, there, there's a quote from a, a movie. How many of you guys saw the movie uh, No Country for Old Men? It's really a chilling movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. But well, if you remember, Tommy Lee Jones plays this, this Texas sheriff. Well, here is the quote of a sheriff from the guy that actually wrote the book No Country for Old Men. So the sheriff is talking in this particular point. He says, I think if you were Satan and you were sitting around trying to think up something that would just bring the human race to its knees, what you would probably come up with is, what's the word? Narcotics. I want to do a little commercial here. We mentioned that this Friday we're going to show a movie called Heroin's Grip here in this auditorium. Um, I am begging you, uh, even if it means changing plans, change your plans, come out See this movie because we are hit with a massive plague. Um, just in the past few months, we've buried three people from drug overdoses in this church alone. So come out because this movie will equip you to understand this problem, show you how to access resources so that if somebody comes across your path that needs help, you are equipped to help them. It'll just take about an hour or so of your time. So if you hadn't already planned to come out this Friday night, please do so. Let me go back to that, that's, that text. So here's Tommy Lee Jones, the sheriff, talking. He says, I think if you know, Satan were to come up with something, it would be narcotics. Maybe he did. It goes on. I told that to somebody at breakfast the other morning, and they asked me if I believe in Satan. I said, well, that ain't the point. And they said, no, but do you? And I had to think about that. I guess I did as a boy, or I guess as a boy I did. Come the middle years, my belief, I reckon, had waned somewhat. Now I'm starting to lean back the other way. And then this. Satan explains a lot of things that otherwise don't have no explanation. If you remember the character, his English wasn't the greatest. Satan explains a lot of things that otherwise don't have no explanation. And so it is. You need, you need to tuck this away, folks. If your worldview doesn't... doesn't have it so solidly as a foundational truth about the universe and life, that there is an evil entity who has one-third of God's angels in rebellion against him that are the source of evil. They started evil. This being called Lucifer, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, when he rebelled against God, he brought evil into the universe, and tragically human beings have become complicit with him. And partner with him. But nevertheless, he is the source. And he still wreaks havoc on lives. And many of the things that we can't get our heads around. And we say, why would anyone do something like this? You've got to factor in that this entity is real. 
and he still at times will do all the damage that he could. When God does, didn't restrain him, he, he would have probably killed Job sooner or taken his life altogether. God protects us often, and we don't even know it's, it's going on. So we need to kind of change our focus. We tend to feel our greatest need is to know why. We, we feel like, man, if I just know why, I'll, I'll be able to handle things. But that's not always necessarily true. Job didn't know why. And God, frankly, never answered him why. That song shows all these different questions that God just peppered him with. So here's the realities that we need to accept and prepare ourselves for. Listen to this from Psalm 34, 19. It says, many hardships and what kind of circumstances? Perplexing circumstances. What are perplexing circumstances? There are circumstances that we say, I don't understand this. I, I don't know why this would be happening. I, I don't understand it. Many, not one or two in a lifetime, many hardships and perplexing circumstances confront who? The righteous, like Job, like you if you put your trust in Christ and you're following him. So my expectation should be that I'm going to encounter many hardships and perplexing things that I can't even get my head around why it's happening. But the Lord does what? Rescues him from what? Them all. Now, I, I could bore you with stories for hours of situations in my life where God has intervened and rescued me in ways that, that are, to me, uh, just unbelievable. They might be boring for you to hear, and I'll bet you some of you have a bunch of stories too. So I lived this truth out. I know this to be true after 44 years of following Jesus. Listen to the words of Peter, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' right-hand men. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, a real entity, a real thinking being, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can, what? Devour. And by devour, you have to understand, what was he trying to do to Job? What does devour mean? He was simply trying to get Job to turn against God. He was simply trying to get Job to uh, accept a distorted view of the kind of person that God really is. And that's what he's still doing to us today. He's still doing it with as many people as he can. Came across a great example of, of one of Satan's successes to give you an idea of what it looks like in everyday life. There's this lady named Wendy Kaminer. She's a, a rather well-known author and feminist and lawyer. And here's her words. She says, something that greatly bothers me about public religiosity is the mandate to worship. Notice she uses the word mandate. It's obligatory. God, God commands is, is the way she views God to worship. She goes on. I don't have a lot of respect for the view of God as some authority figure who wants you to come and kneel before him. Look, look at her view of God and kneel before him every week. There's this sense that you are to go to your church or your synagogue or your mosque or wherever it is that you go and in some way abase yourself before the Lord. That seems to me to be such a demeaning way of seeing God. And I answer, yes, it is. But she buys it, obviously. She, she's been sold Satan's goods. Satan wants people to think that that's how God is, that he's all about power. He's all about control. All he wants is people bowing down and cowering and doing these weird things that make no rational sense so that they can appease him. But that's not who he is. Satan slanders God to humans and he slanders humans to God you've got to factor that into any any kind of a realistic picture about life that you might have so 
We tend to feel like we really need to know the why. But could this really be the, the more important truth? Could it be our greatest need is to know the who? If I know the who, and I'm talking about Christ, our creator, I'm talking about God, if I know him, and I don't mean just like know that he exists, I mean I know what he's like. I, I know his promises. I know what, what he is uh, what his purposes are in this life. I, I know what he said he will do for me. I, I know how to um, adjust my expectations to what he said this life should be. If I know him, if I understand his will and his ways and his word, if I know him, then I don't need to know the why to allow things. Let, look, for you that have kids, how many here have kids? See your hands. Okay, most of you have kids. Um, when your children were very small, you probably frequently told them to do things that they did not understand the why. Okay, so like your kid maybe wants to eat a big piece of chocolate cake because they see the cake on the table, but you're like, no, 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 eat this green stuff, this bitter, this bitter green stuff is good for you. And, and your kid's like, you gotta be kidding me, I know that tastes good, this tastes like dirt. But they do it because they're scared of you. No, 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 no. no they, <laughs> they do it because your mom, your dad. It's the who. They don't, they don't need the why. They probably like to have the why. But, but because they know who you are, you're the one that loves them. You're the one that's cared for them. And so even though they don't understand it at all, man, it tastes like dirt. But they sit there and shovel it on in their mouth because you say so. It's the, it's the who that is more important than the why. So, if we know the who, the who can assure us life does make sense. Our Creator tells us this life makes sense. He tells us that there is meaning, there is purpose, regardless of how chaotic and random it may appear at times. If I could go on. That will, that he tells us that He will stand with us so that we will be able to stand even what we may initially not, what is the word, understand. When I know that he's going to stand with me, he's never going to leave me, he's never going to forsake me, that he loves me, that he's for me, then I can stand what I don't initially understand. I can still stand it because I know him. And I know that he's good all the time. And I know that he is sacrificially devoted to me. That he wants my highest good and happiness way more than I do. And he knows what will really bring it. He knows the way he designed me. I don't. I'm a fool. I'm an experimenter in life. You know, I'm just trying to eke out some happiness. Until we come to his word and allow ourselves to be re-schooled, to be re-educated, we are all experimenting, looking for happiness. But we know him. And we know that he cares more for our happiness and our highest well-being than we do. Well, then I don't need to always know why if I know him. Listen to these words from the Old Testament, Jeremiah. And, and many of you know the story of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah ministered to the people of Israel for over 40 years. It was just when they were ready to go into Babylonian captivity. They were in terrible rebellion. And Jeremiah, for over 40 years, begged them to turn back to God. He cried. He wept. He did everything he could. They refused to listen, and finally the Babylonians overrun them. They slaughter them. They burn the temple down. It's horrific. So this is Jeremiah writing after that event. He, he witnessed it with his eyes. He says, I have forgotten what health and peace and happiness are. He's saying, I'm, I'm destroyed from this. Yet, yet, hope returns when I remember this one thing. What is it, Jeremiah? What is it that gives you hope? 
the Lord's what? The Lord's unfailing love and mercy still continue. He was focused on the who. His circumstances were disastrous, but he knew the who that he could always trust in. The Lord's unfailing love and mercy continue. The Lord is good to everyone who what? You got to get that. He's good to everyone who trusts him. We're talking relational trust. We're not talking about a catechismic belief in some doctrines. We are talking about individuals that have come to the point in life that they say, everybody's following somebody. You follow whoever you want. I've put my trust in Jesus. He's won my trust, and I'm going to follow him fully, and I'm going to follow him freely because I trust him, and I'm going to follow him forever. God is with those who truly trust him, not mouth some formulas about religious stuff, but truly trust him. You've you got to pause right there because we're all going to go through some things in life and we're not always going to understand them. And some of them are going to hurt very badly. And knowing the why may not ever come, but if you really know the who, I mean you trust Jesus so much that you could walk through hell and you'd never doubt him. You trust Jesus so much, you know him, you know how devoted he is to you that no matter what befalls you in life, and I'm speaking for myself here, I'm not a courageous guy at all, not at all, but I so trust Jesus, he has so won my trust, no matter whatever happens to me in life, you all witness it, I hope it goes good, but if it doesn't go good no matter whatever happens to me i know he is for me he's never against me i will stay faithful to him until the last breath comes out of my body it's not because of me it's just because he is beautifully wonderfully sacrificially loving and trustworthy he proved that for all time when he went to the cross to show to each of us that all of his almighty power is always governed and controlled by his sacrificial love for you. You, you. you can never do better. We can never do better for ourselves than when we trust him and learn his will, his word, and his ways. Listen to what Peter says once, once again. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, he's going to give us something on the other side. If you're thinking of life just from this little chronological point of start and stop, you know, then you're not thinking widely enough because God says there's eternity to come. It says he called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have, what does it say? Suffered how long? A little while. Job suffered a little while. Sometimes a little while can be a lot of our life. But God promises he's going to more than compensate for it. Look at this verse. Romans 8, 18, it says, For I consider that the what's, sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the what the glory that is going to be revealed to us it's kind of like down here it's it's training ground it's boot camp it's it's character development time this is not home it says that we are citizens of another dimension a heavenly dimension where god's will is done all the time where everybody's loved everybody's safe everybody's happy everybody's secure there is no such thing as stress or worry or fear or disease or death that that, that's our home this isn't our home. This is, this is testing ground. This is development ground. This is war time. As we stand faithful to God, we are standing against the evil forces that want to pull us to think like they do about God. 
Well, let me close with a story from a man named John Lennox. He's a, a brilliant mathematician and a Christian apologist. Christian apologist, that doesn't mean he goes around apologizing for Christ. It, <laughs> it's somebody that takes concrete, powerful, compelling evidences and showing that we, the basis of our faith is, is uh, historically and archaeologically and in many other ways uh, solid. Anyway, Lennox went on a trip and he went to Auschwitz um, and as he was touring the camp, he made a friendship with uh, a, a number of the tourists, but this one lady in particular, and she was a Jewish lady who lived in South Africa, but many of her family members had died uh, under the Nazis in Auschwitz. And here she was touring the camp where many of her family members were, were slaughtered, you know. So she's going around, and she knows that Lennox is a Christian. She's Jewish. And at one point, she turns to him as they're in the midst of signage about, you know, Joseph Mengele, the, the horrific doctor that did uh, terrible experiments on children and adults and things. And she says, what does your religion say about this? It's quite a question when you're standing in Auschwitz. Here's his answer. He says, I have no easy answers, but I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. If Yeshua, and don't let it throw you, that's just messianic terminology for Jesus. It's, it's just, his, his name is Yahashua, means, means God saves. So Yeshua is talking about Jesus. If Yeshua was really God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? Could it be, could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering. He was right there with Job through the whole thing. I'm going to show you something in chapter 42 in just a minute. It goes on. For me, this is the beginning of hope. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. He rose from the dead, and one day, as the final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, meaning the Nazis too. They will not get away with what they did, is what he was implying to the Jewish lady in righteousness and mercy. After a long pause, tears came to her eyes and she said these words. Why has no one ever told me that about my, my Messiah before? Now, I don't know. I don't know if she was converted or not by that. But, her, but, but, but Lennox's point is that God suffers with us. That since evil has entered the universe, he's not detached. He feels the inner suffering and the physical suffering of every human being that suffers. Listen to how attached he actually was to Job while Job probably thought God had abandoned him. Listen to chapter 42. Turn there, if you will. It's page 594, and we'll close with this. Look at verse 7. It says, After the Lord had spoken these things to Job, he says to Job's friends, he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger is stirred up against you and your two friends because you have not spoken about me what is right as my servant Job had. When Job was defending himself, God says, Job was right. And you bunch of clowns, they kept saying, I was the one punishing him. I was the one angry at him. You're wrong. And God said, and that angers me. Now the story ends well. Job prays for his friends. God forgives them. And then it says in verse 10, it says, The Lord doubled all that he had, all that had belonged to Job. 
He doubles his fortune. He has twice as many children. And then it says in verse 16, he lived 140 years. Now, some of you are thinking, I know what you're thinking. It doesn't make up for the 10 kids that died. Yeah, but the 10 kids that died, he's going to have them in eternity forever. Plus, he had 20 more kids and lived 140 years. So here's the thing. It's one simple question for us to ask ourselves. When the day, should the day come that our life gets turned upside down? And I hope that it doesn't. Are we going to agonize over why? Why, God? Why? You could have done something. Why? Are you angry at me? Are you punishing me? Have you abandoned me? Are you even there at all? Do you care at all? Are we going to play that game? Or are we going to say, you know what? I know who God is, and I know that he loves me. I know that he's for me. He died for me, so he is for me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. He promises me that when I go through the sufferings, he himself will restore me and strengthen me. And he'll take me into his eternal kingdom, which will more than compensate forever to whatever sufferings I go through here on this earth. You need to tuck that away. That needs to be a part of your view of reality if you're going to walk through this life with some stability, with some courage, and with some joy, regardless of circumstances. Let's pray. Father, only you can help us internalize these truths because we'll surely be tested in one way or another. Help us each to do so. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.